For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Welcome once again to all you podcast enthusiasts. I'm John Cassinet. I'll be presenting another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. This particular podcast is the second part of a two-part series that deals with the seven churches in Asia Minor that John wrote to when he wrote the book of Revelation. These particular churches and the letters to these churches are found in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, and uh, since we last week were able to cover the overview of the seven churches and uh, the church in Ephesus, today we're going to be focused on the other six churches, beginning with the second church um, located in a town called Smyrna. You'll find this uh, particular letter recorded in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It's only four verses of description in, of the letter that went to this particular city. So it was the shortest of all seven letters. And uh, in this particular letter, this was a city that was not condemned or reproved by John when writing the letter. So just to put the city in geographical perspective, you'll recall that Ephesus was located on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And if you go about 40 to 50 miles north of Ephesus, still on the coast of the sea, we'll run into the city of Smyrna. This city was beautified by Alexander the Great, who was the great Greek conqueror in the uh, roughly 330 BC. At the time that he beautified the city, it, he created these nice wide paved streets and all the streets were at uh, right angles to each other. So a lot of design went into this particular city. One thing that they did forget was they forgot to include some type of a drainage system in the uh, city so they had some issues there but uh, it was a very beautiful city it was also known for its schools of science and medicine it had an amphitheater that was the uh, largest in the province uh, some people refer to it as the Paris of the Levant uh, the Levant would designate an area in Western Asia along the Mediterranean seashore. So, you know, if you ever find that Paris, France is booked up, you can always go to Smyrna, which is the Paris of the Levant. At the time of John's writing, there were probably about 200,000 residents in the city. So it's a very large city, and some say that it boasted as many as 750,000 residents. The city's name today is called Izmir in uh, modern Turkey, and that name is probably a corruption of the ancient name of Smyrna. In other words, Izmir is a derivation of the city name of Smyrna, and today it has a population of about 250,000 people. And, uh, the population is largely Greek, um, and interestingly enough, about one-third of the population in Izmir are Christians. The Olympic Games were also held in this city anciently. 
It also rivaled Ephesus in commercial importance because it had a superb harbor and it was also surrounded by fertile areas where there were lots of agricultural products that could be grown. Uh, from the standpoint of kind of the uh, inhabitants in the city, it was a city that catered to its Roman overlords. And so about the time that uh, the cities, the citizens in Smyrna kind of recognized that Rome was becoming a growing power in the area, they built a Roman temple there foreseeing that the day would come when they could be Romans or under Roman control. So they're kind of trying to get ahead of the curve. So the first Roman temple that they built was in 195 BC. And as a consequence of their kind of uh, being on the cutting edge of the uh, Roman civilization, if you will, uh, they became a center for fanatical emperor worship and they required everyone to uh, worship the uh, Roman emperor. This practice first really began, this, this idea of uh, Roman uh, emperor worship with a, uh, an emperor by the name of Caligula. Uh, some historians have referred to him as a young madman, but he decreed in about 38 AD that everyone would have to worship the Roman emperor. And uh, it was kind of an expression of loyalty to the state, um, a lot like a pledge of allegiance to the flag, but uh, because you were basically pledging your allegiance and your devotion to uh, the Roman emperor, not only as the head of state, but as a god, this was a, a serious problem for both the uh, Jews and Christians. It kind of put them between a rock and a hard place because um, they couldn't worship the emperor uh, because of their religion. But if they didn't worship the emperor, of course, they were considered to be disloyal. And so it wasn't so much of a religious oppression from the standpoint of the Roman reaction to the refusal of Jews and Christians to worship the emperor. It was a matter of loyalty to the state. So when Caligula uh, decreed that the, the Jews and everyone in the empire and the Christians had to begin worshiping the emperor. This is what ultimately sparked the first Jewish revolt in 68 AD that then leads, or 66 AD, that then leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jeru Jewish temple of Herod in Jerusalem in 70 AD. You can thank Caligula for that because uh, he came in and uh, desecrated the temple and uh, uh, forced the Jews to worship him. So that's, that's kind of a little background on where we get started on the fanatical emperor worship that was still going on at the time that John wrote his letter to Smyrna in about 96 AD. Um, because uh, Smyrna was uh, kind of a religious center, it had many temples that included to the, the goddess Roma, to the goddess uh, Bacchus, who was the god of wine. Uh, they had a temple to the uh, Roman emperor Tiberius that was built. And, um, and so you had them worshiping all of these uh, pagan idols and, and the gods of the Roman Empire. And one temple inscription uh, about Nero, it described him as the savior of the whole human race. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of the type of worship practices that were occurring in the city. The city was also the acclaimed birthplace of the Greek 
um, author um, by the name of Homer. And uh, so some of you will remember, like I do, studying the Odyssey when I was in ninth grade. Um, <laughs> I have to say, I was not a good student of uh, the Odyssey when I was in ninth grade. I remember, you know, they gave us a little uh, paperback version of the Odyssey that we were supposed to read. And uh, I probably did read it, but in, I would be sitting in class talking about it, and I was drawing little fish in my in the margins of the book. And so uh, <clears throat> on each new page, you'd adjust the fish a little bit so that it was a little further uh, up or down the margin so that when you would flip through the margins of the book really quickly... <laughs> you'd see the fish swimming in the margins of my book. And so that's that's what I mostly remember about my study of Homer and the Odyssey in uh, ninth grade. So uh, I know that's probably disappointing, and you're sitting here thinking, well, what does this guy know about anything? He's the guy that sits here and draws fish in the margins of his book all day. <laughs> and I guess that's true. But I've repented since then, and I've tried to be a little bit more studious. Um, so as far as Homer, uh, he was the, uh, it was claimed that he was born in, um, in the city of Smyrna, but I have to also add there are other cities who make the same claim. But Smyrna was one of the few cities that actually erected a temple in his honor. So they do have that difference, and uh, they can make that claim to fame perhaps a little better than some of the other cities that are claiming Homer as uh, their either a residence or uh, the place of his birth. Um, the bishop that uh, was in place at the time that John wrote his uh, letter to Smyrna was probably a guy by the name of Polycarp. And uh, this comes from multiple sources of the church fathers who wrote about Polycarp. Some people have their doubts about whether Polycarp was the bishop in Smyrna only because he was martyred in 155 AD at the age of about 86 years old. Some would say he was a convert of 86 years old that would make him even much later, but a lot of people are saying that uh, they question whether Polycarp could have been the bishop to whom John was writing his letter in 96 AD because that would have made him a bishop in Smyrna for another 60 years until his death in 155 AD. And so for, for those of you who serve as uh, bishops today and have uh, about a five-year tenure, <laughs> just imagine uh, if you were serving 12 times as long with uh, good old Polycarp who served for 60 years. You know, my grandfather um, was kind of a pioneer in his little branch in Saratoga, Wyoming. And my recollection is he served as the branch president for about 20 years. And my grandmother was either the primary president or the Relief Society president. I can't remember which. It probably was the primary, is my recollection. But she served for over 20 years also in that position as well. And uh, the two of them together only two-thirds as long as what uh, good old Polycarp served as the bishop in Smyrna for his 60 years. Uh, Polycarp was also an individual who knew John personally and was mentored by the Apostle John. There are some indications that John probably ordained Polycarp as the bishop in Smyrna. And we have uh, Eusebius, one of the church fathers, to thank for giving us the graphic details of Polycarp's death. <clears throat> so I just want to tell you a little bit about that because that kind of comes into play in terms of the content 
excuse me, the content of the letter um, that uh, John writes in 96 AD. So what happens to Polycarp some 60 years later is a reflection of some of the things that John wrote to him about in 96 AD. So what we learn from Eusebius is that three days before Polycarp was arrested, he had a dream that he was going to be burned alive. Now, this came about through the instigation of the Jews, and uh, they're complaining that Polycarp was refusing to worship the emperor. And so they brought him to the Romans and said, uh, Polycarp won't worship, and uh, he, they uh, took him to the amphitheater located there in Smyrna, where he was basically tried by the proconsul, whose name was Stratius Quadratus, or Quadratus, um, and Eusebius records that the proconsul urged Polycarp saying, swear by Caesar's fortune and I will release thee, revile Christ. And Polycarp's response to this was this, quote, eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me wrong. How then can I revile my king and my savior? Close quote. Now, at that point, the crowd then demanded his death by fire, um, and the Jewish populace were so enraged and so bent on having Polycarp killed that they went about and started collecting all the logs for the fire that would be used to burn him, even though it was the Sabbath day, and it was a violation of their own worship practices to be engaged in this activity. So after all the wood and everything was fired, uh, gathered by the, uh, the Jewish people, Eusebius records that Polycarp laid aside his garments and took his place in the midst of the fuel, and when they would have secured him with nails to the stake, he said, quote, Let me remain as I am, for he that has enabled me to brave the fire will so strengthen me that, without your fastening me with nails, I shall, unmoved, endure its fierceness. And the final words spoken by Polycarp at the time of his death were these, quote, Father <clears throat> of thy well-beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, I bless thee that thou hast thought me worthy of the present day and hour to have a share in the number of the martyrs and in the cup of Christ unto the resurrection of life, both of the soul and the body, in the incorruptible felicity of the Holy Spirit." Close quote. So after Polycarp had then repeated the words, Amen, several times and had finished his prayer, the executioners then kindled the fire and he died a martyr's death um, in Smyrna at the age of 86 in about 155 AD. Polycarp was highly revered uh, by the faithful saints of Smyrna, both in life and in death. And so after his uh, martyrdom, they gathered up his bones, which they said were, quote, more precious to us than jewels and finer than pure gold. And we laid them to rest in a spot suitable for the purpose, close quote. So that tomb still exists, or at least they, what they think is Polycarp's tomb still exists in the modern city of uh, Smyrna and uh, can be seen 
Um, a lot of people tend to think that because of the type of veneration that the early saints had for Polycarp, that this is where we kind of get the idea among the Greek and Roman churches for the veneration of saints. Uh, J. Reuben Clark took this position saying that he believed that uh, Polycarp's death and his veneration by the saints was what ultimately led to the veneration of saints in the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches. So some people also think that uh, when Polycarp died, uh, the remnant of the church in Smyrna may have also metaphorically died with him. It was one of, certainly, we don't know for sure, but it was, certainly was one of the last Christian strongholds in Asia. And the Turks referred to the city itself as the infidel Smyrna. It was the last city to fall to the Turks and to, um, to the religion of Islam in 1424 AD. So that's a little bit of the history of the city of Smyrna. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about the letter itself and how John uses these types of conditions and geographical situation and interweaves these types of circumstances into the letter itself. So keep in mind, John is writing this letter to uh, his friend Polycarp, who he would have known quite well. And uh, in saluting him in uh, Revelation, uh, he references the, these things saith the first and the last which is dead and is alive. And so this concept and what happened to Polycarp in Smyrna is specifically incorporated into the, uh, the discussion of this letter going to uh, Polycarp uh, from John because 60 years later he's martyred and his last and greatest hope was Christ uh, according to his own words. And so now if you compare that back to how Christ described himself in the first chapter of Revelation in verses 17 and 18 he says, quote, and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead. And this is referring to John who when he saw the Savior He's the one that falls at the feet of Christ as though John were dead. And then he, being Christ, laid his hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. So Christ takes those words, incorporates them into his letter that he's writing through John to Polycarp talking about how he again is the first and the last and was dead and is alive. And this recounts the history of Polycarp, even so much so the use of the word amen, um, because that's those are the words that Polycarp also spoke um, as one of the last words that he spoke before his uh, martyrdom by fire. Now it's kind of interesting because this notion that uh, in Revelation 2.8 you have these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. This particular type of writing style is, is a poetic style called antithetical parallelism, where you have these, these comparative and contrasting or converse clauses in the same sentence. So in other words, you have the first clause, these things saith the first, and then you have the second clause, which is converse to it, 
the word last. So first and last, dead and alive. That, that's the nature of these antithetical parallelisms in this particular form of writing. And the whole letter is written in this style. So you have the first, the last, the dead, the alive, the rich and the poor, Jews who are not Jews, the dead receive a crown of life. All of these things uh, tend to reinforce the truths that are being talked about and express the paradoxical truth that the righteous dead shall receive eternal life. And then these promises become certain because they come from what? One who died and lived again. So that's all part of the structure of this letter. And I, I find it rather incredible. To me, it's kind of an inspiring thing uh, to think about this coming from the Savior, who, who has, he's, he's a great poet, um, and uh, it just reinforces the belief of how divinely worded these things are, that you have these kinds of things built into it to help us with our understanding of these divine principles. Now, the other thing that's interesting about Smyrna is the name actually means myrrh. And so you'll recognize that as being one of the gifts that was brought to the uh, the Savior at the time of his birth. He got the frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Now the etymology of the, uh, the word, it comes from a Semitic root word meaning bitter. And again, it, it's consistent with this idea of the antithetical parallelism because we have myrrh, which is a uh, kind of an anointing balm, it's a sweet perfume, it's incense, uh, and yet uh, it comes from the root word that means bitter. So right in the word itself, there is this antithetical parallelism. It's also interesting that it comes from uh, a gum resin from small thorny trees. So what we get from a thorny tree is this uh, anointing balm that is used when the dead are anointed. And the idea is, is that the anointing prepares them uh, for eternal life. And so you have the promise of eternal life where martyrs are essentially balm, embalmed with the myrrh of Smyrna. And th that's all kind of incorporated into this letter that uses these kinds of things, talking about the, the first and the last, the dead and the alive, and so on and so forth. And so I'm not going to get into too much more detail about um, what the saints were doing that uh, further reflect on these same kinds of attributes, because uh, we're going to go long anyway. And I, I plan to do another podcast in the future where I'll t be talking specifically about the types of activities that the uh, saints were engaged in. Suffice it to say that what we have in the letter to Smyrna is a repeated message of life beyond death. And that's also part of the history of Smyrna itself. This is a city that was destroyed many times and rose again. For example, it was destroyed in 600 BC by the, the, when the Lydians were destroyed. They had control at that time. And the city was destroyed, uh, but eventually was rebuilt about 300 years later when uh, Alexander uh, came in and the Greek Empire took control. It was also a city that was frequently subjected to destruction by earthquakes and plagues, and yet it rose through these things to become the among the seven cities uh, the longest standing Christian religion 
among the uh, the Jews and uh, <clears throat> in that area or part of the world, and so it was also the last to uh, be overcome by the uh, Turkish uh, people and the uh, religion of Islam. So that's a little bit about Smyrna. We need to now move on, uh, going a little bit further north, and now we're going somewhat inland also to the city of Pergamos. This city is described in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And uh, we can thank Eusebius again for telling us that the name of the bishop was uh, Corpus. And he was someone who was also later martyred uh, as a result of his steadfastness in the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, um, the letter we have in uh, of in Revelation chapter 2 is really all that we know about this ancient church other than Eusebius gives us the name of the bishop we really don't have much information uh, beyond what John writes in these uh, approximately six verses here so um, the church itself uh, got a letter that contained both good news and bad news in other words the uh, the Savior writing through John said well you've done some good things but you've also done some bad things and so uh, it was good news bad news for them so Pergamos also sometimes called Pergamum is actually a, a celebrated city so it we're going in up about 50 miles north of Smyrna and as I mentioned kind of going inland 15 to 20 miles this still is located in what is modern Turkey it probably had about hundred and eighty thousand inhabitants anciently and the current name of the city is Bergama which boasts about a hundred thousand uh, residents today and there are lots of ancient ruins uh, today in the city. Pergamos was probably most famous for its 200,000 volume library. It rivaled the library at uh, Alexandria in Egypt up until the time that uh, Mark Antony gifted the entire library of Pergamos to Queen Cleopatra of Egypt as a gesture of friendship. Now, <laughs> if you've ever seen the old movie Cleopatra that was made back in 1963 with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, the the library would have come as much more than a gesture of friendship. Uh, you know, Mark Antony was wooing Cleopatra to uh, gain her favor as a lover. <laughs> and so uh, people, historians say it was a gesture of friendship, but uh, Hollywood says it's much more than uh, a token or gesture of friendship. But at any rate, uh, Pergamos and its library is also famous because Pergamos was the first city to make sheepskin parchment, which it did in roughly the second century BC. And that's where the, uh, the material parchment actually derives its name. So when we talk about parchment, that's related to Pergamos where the discovery of parchment was made. Now, up until that time, uh, codices and scrolls and things were made of a plant material and it's called papyrus. And so we find a lot of these in Egypt Egypt. But when the Egyptians saw that Pergamos was trying to develop its own library that would, would, that would rival the library in Egypt, they refused to send the papyrus 
to Pergamo so that they could create these books and uh, and add to their library. And so because of this rivalry, the Egyptians refused to send papyrus. And so the Pergamos people went ahead and developed their own form of uh, creating these codices using per the uh, papyrus out of uh, sheepskins and uh, and other types of animal skins. And so that's kind of a little bit of the history of its library and how it came to be and its connection to uh, the library in Alexandria in Egypt. Now, unlike Ephesus and Smyrna that were both uh, very large and prosperous commercial centers, Pergamos was not a commercial city. Uh, it was, however, a center of learning for science. It was also a religious center. And uh, it was actually the first to build a temple to the Roman Emperor Augustus in uh, 29 BC. And it also had a large altar to Zeus that was erected in about 190 BC. And on that particular altar, Zeus is shown defeating uh, these two snakes and Pergamos in the, in the letter then is called the seed of Satan, which relates back directly to this idea of this altar that's been built to Zeus showing his defeat of these snakes. The city was also kind of a natural fortress that was home to various rulers that had a great deal of wealth. It was also the provincial capital after the city was given to the Romans in about 133 BC. This city also, uh, like Smyrna, hosted the Olympic Games, and this is attested to by a number of coins and uh, artifacts. <laughs> you may also be interested to know that it also hosted annual cockfights. <laughs> I don't think that the cockfights ever became an Olympic sport, and as far as I know, it's not an Olympic sport today, so uh, just uh, by way of interest and to make sure that your knowledge of Pergamos is complete, I knew you wouldn't want to go home without knowing that they had yearly cockfights that never made their way as a uh, approved sport in the Olympics. <laughs> so at any rate, when uh, when Asia first became a Roman province, Pergamos was the capital, uh, but eventually that switches out and ceases to be the case, and so it only became kind remained kind of a religious center, as uh, I've discussed before. And as a religious center, it boasted multiple pagan temples, but probably the most famous among them was the temple that was built to the healing god Asclepius, and he was the most prominent idol in the city. Asclepius was the Greco-Roman god of medicine and healing. The emblem for this particular deity was two interlaced serpents on a rod. Now, if that sounds familiar to you or you're having a little bit of deja vu, that emblem is now used by the American Medical Association. So if you look at the AMA emblem, you'll see that it has a rod and you got these two snakes that are kind of coiled around the rod. Well, the original place, you know, Moses never trademarked his image when uh, he put his serpent on a pole that had the healing power. Remember when the serpents came among the Israelites when they were in the wilderness and they started biting people and in order to uh, protect the people against uh, what were called these quote fiery serpents, all they had to do was look to the rod that where Moses 
had put a serpent on a pole and if they simply looked it had healing power and because of the hard-heartedness of the uh, the Israelites some of them refused to look and uh, of course they died as a result so if Moses had trademarked that image back in his day, then it couldn't have been stolen by the healing god Asclepius. But since there was no trademark, <laughs> Asclepius incorporates that image. And then the AMA, because Asclepius didn't trademark it, they incorporated it into their symbols. Now, how does that fit into the letter that we're talking about here with the Pergamos and also as it relates to what we just talked about with this with this uh, with Smyrna where you have this uh, antithetical parallelism because one of the snakes essentially was death and one of the snakes was life and you have them kind of in a constant battle between life and death fighting each other and so that's the image that we get of uh, of Asclepius uh, and his imagery. And so at the temple, it's not surprising that because the snake was kind of an integral part of the symbol, of, they kept a live snake at the temple of Asclepius, and they kept it and fed it and they worshipped it. And I guess the best I can say is um, I don't have to have to worry ever of my wife worshipping at the temple of Asclepius because she hates snakes and would never go to that temple. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, um, obviously with the uh, medicinal practices uh, that were used in uh, the Temple of Asclepius, it, it tended to incorporate uh, a lot of potion, these healing arts, witchcraft, uh, the study of the mysteries. And so uh, part of the worship, of course, is what you would always expect in temples of this type with a lot of immorality and uh, witchcraft, sorcery, things of this nature um, that are kind of vintage paganism. The temple also included the right of sanctuary, the, according to Roman law. So if uh, uh, criminals were able to get to the uh, the temple, they could uh, claim sanctuary under uh, certain under certain circumstances. Um, so since this was kind of a healing center, you had a lot of people from the outlying regions that would travel to um, Pergamos to uh, to go to the temple of Asclepius where they would be healed. It's a little bit like the uh, the pool at Bethesda in Jerusalem, which means the house of mercy. And you remember the people would come there. Jesus performed a miracle at this pool where the people would wait by the the side of the pool waiting for an angel to trouble the waters and whoever got to the water first then was by tradition healed and so there are some that think that, that there was a form of uh, worship of Asclepius occurring at the pool of Bethesda uh, there in Jerusalem much as it was occurring in um, Pergamos. So the uh, the city also uh, had emperor worship that was required for everyone but Jews in this particular city. So apparently the Jews were kind of known that you're never going to get these guys to worship the emperor. And so they got kind of a pass and were grandfathered in against having to, to worship the emperor in uh, Pergamos. But it was a great hardship for uh, Christians. And John mentions one martyr in particular that came from Pergamos by the name of Antipas. He's the only named martyr 
um, in the book of Revelation who is uh, specifically uh, mentioned by name. And so, again, I'm going to talk about him later on, but uh, that's just some more of the, the background of uh, Pergamos. Now, let's tie all of those uh, circumstances that exist in Pergamos to the attributes of Jesus Christ, because in Revelation 2.12, um, in the letter written by John to Pergamos, it says, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And then if you go back to chapter 1, to Revelation 1.16, where the attributes are described, it there states that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Um, and so the two are, are again relating one to another and this idea of a two-edged sword uh, means that it cuts both ways it has both the power of life and has the power of death and so you have the two snakes of Ascalopia, one that represents date uh, death duking it out with the other snake that's representing life and so that corresponds to this concept of the two-edged sword the symbolic sword of course uh, is also antithetical to the sharp sword of Rome used to enforce its false emperor worship. So the proconsul in Pergamos had what's called the right of the sword, meaning he had the right to impose capital punishment, including on those who failed to worship the emperor. And the sword ultimately, cutting both ways again, is in, in Pergamos, you had these series of temples as a uh, religious center, and when the Turkish invaders came through in the 13th, 14th centuries, all of these pagan temples were completely hewn down by these Turkish invaders, and there are no temples uh, that exist in Pergamos today uh, because they were all destroyed by the uh, sword of these Turkish invaders. And so you can see how John takes the circumstances of the city, relates them to the message from the Savior, and makes for a nice neat, neat package if you understand some of the symbolism and the correlation between these things. So that's Pergamos, um, and now we want to move to uh, Thyatira. We're now going to be kind of going we're still on the inland. We're now heading south uh, and somewhat east to the city of Thyatira. And you'll find the description of this letter in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And this is going to be our fourth letter now. Um, it's again a good news, bad news letter. Uh, some things that they were doing well, but they were also condemned for other things that were occurring. And again, I'm not going to get into what it was they were doing, um, and I'll save that for another day. Looking at the geography of the city, uh, Thyatira was a pretty small town, <clears throat> but it was also a thriving town. It's about 30 to 40 miles southeast of Pergamos uh, on the road to Sardis, which we'll run into in our next city. The name of this city is now called Akhisar, which means White Castle in modern Turkey. And this name is derived from the white marble that is uh, very abundant in this location of uh, Turkey. It's also the longest letter uh, that was written to also what would be described as the smallest and least important city. Today, there's no trace of Christianity in the modern city, and there are actually very few ruins that remain. 
In the first century AD, Thyatira's primary industry was dyeing expensive cloth, and the industry was controlled by pagan-dominated trade unions and workers' guilds. So you had a series of guilds. They, they'd be comparable to our, our, um, our unions today, workers' unions, the United Auto Workers and stuff like that. Um, but the, uh, the guilds uh, covered all of the workers and industries for leather workers, bakers, coppersmiths, clothiers, and dyers of fabric, with probably the dyers' guild being the most strong and particularly noteworthy among them. Now, the thing about the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the thing about the, uh, the dyers' guild and others of its type were the immoral practices associated with them that made them naturally opposed to Christianity. So if you go to a union meeting, so to speak, um, the, the first thing that happens is they start offering incense to uh, the patron deity or to the emperor and, and other things like this and uh, partake of immoral practices. Um, you know, they turn into kind of just big par parties and orgies uh, when people were going to, and I guess it's really not too terribly unlike, you know, industries that sponsor these getaways and whatever and the things that happen you know whatever happens in vegas stays in vegas kind of uh, information which coincidentally i had an interesting case <laughs> i told you i wasn't going to tell stories but here i go i had an interesting case representing the woman who actually tried to trademark that saying about las vegas in other words, the saying, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. She invented that and uh, eventually hired a lawyer to represent her to uh, try and get the trademark. And so she was duking it out with, obviously, the city of Las Vegas and uh, um, eventually lost the case and lost her trademark. And I got involved in the case after the fact because I sued the lawyer who handled her trademark case for uh, basically messing up her case. And so uh, I could give you more details than that. And we eventually resolved the case and <laughs> details can't be disclosed, blah, blah, blah. But at any rate, just, sorry, I'm, di I'm digressing. So let's get back to um, Thyatira and the, the immoral practices that occur not in Las Vegas, but in Thyatira and in other places because it was a fairly common practice. It also kind of foreshadows a lot of the conditions in the latter days in modern Babylon. So for example, John <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 18 talks about um, the merchants of Babylon. And so he's looking at the modern version of what were these ancient trade guilds. And all of these then stand in opposition to or opposite of what we call Latter-day Zion. So they're mere opposite images. Now, Acts 16 has the account of a woman by the name of Lydia, which it describes as a uh, as a per, who she, which is described as a person who was a wealthy businesswoman from Thyatira. So even though uh, Paul encountered her in Philippi and she was converted to the gospel at that location, it says that she was uh, from Thyatira. And she probably had a pretty thriving business because um, she uh, had a large enough dwelling in Philippi 
to accommodate Paul and his companions after she was converted. Prior to her conversion, she was probably a Gentile who worshiped with the Jews. So she was a proselyte. In other words, a Gentile who has converted to Judaism would have been known as a proselyte. So she had been converted to Judaism, was studying Judaism at the time she runs into Paul, and then ultimately converts to uh, Christianity. She was described as a seller of purple, meaning she was probably a member of the Dyers Guild from Thyatira. Um, and the uh, the purple was a fabric that was very valuable, worn by princes and uh, rich people. And it came from a shellfish that was uh, fairly common in the waters there at Thyatira. And that's probably the reason why it became some of the best known uh, among the Dyers Guild for uh, that particular color. And uh, even though she was from Thyatira, she was actually converted in uh, Philippi. And as a result of her conversion, she probably lost her business. Um, so she had to make a pretty big sacrifice to uh, join the church. And the reason that most likely occurred was once she became associated uh, and a convert of the gospel, she could no longer be associated with the Dyers Guild. And uh, that's just kind of a simple fact of how life was at that time. And that even though we don't have anything to confirm that uh, by way of uh, other uh, writings, um, that in all likelihood is probably the case. Now, Thyatira was also the center for the worship of the sun, which is one of the oldest and most pervasive forms of idolatry. And you can kind of understand why, because the sun being this this big bright thing in the sky every day giving life and uh, just this magnificent thing, you can understand why it became a source of worship. And, and so in Egypt, for example, uh, Ra was the sun god and one of the most uh, significant gods in ancient Egypt. And so prior to about 281 BC, uh, Thyatira was the location for the temple of the Lydian sun god, which was known as Trimnos. And by the first century AD, that temple had kind of evolved, and because now we're no longer under the control of the, uh, the Lydians, and we're now under the control of the Romans, they basically took the sun god Trimnos of the Lydians, and he evolved into the Roman god of the sun called Apollo, or the god of light. And Apollo in uh, Greek mythology would have been the son of Zeus. And so he became the primary god of the pagans in Thyatira. And this letter that John is writing to the Thyatirans then confronts this particular form of false worship by saying in Revelation 2.18, These things saith the Son of God. All right, and so we're taking this, what is in Thyatira, this worship of the sun god, and Jesus is going head to head, mano a mano, against Apollo, or Trimnos uh, in prior versions, and saying, I'm the son of God. And so it's interesting because in this particular letter, he not only gives his name, as the Son of God, uh, but in addition, in a moment, we'll talk about some of the attributes that he uses to compare and contrast 
the worship of the Thyatirans of uh, the sun god Apollo. And so it's uh, kind of interesting that uh, if you look in Revelation 1, there is no specific reference to a son of God, but it does reference the son of man. And so they're basically obviously the same person. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting because what you're doing here by referring to the son of God, that's S-O-N, son of God, he's really going against the son of the worship of the sun, meaning S-U-N. So there's a little play of words going on here by saying, these things say at the Son of God, he's challenging the son of the Thyatirans, meaning the sun god. And so we find a similar play on words in Malachi chapter 2, where Christ is referred to as the Son of Righteousness, and it's not S-O-N, Son of Righteousness, it's S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. And so we, get, we find that kind of play on words uh, elsewhere, but the bottom line is, in this verse, Christ is de declaring his divine sonship to the Thyatirans in contrast to and in opposition to the sun god that is worshipped there in Thyatira in the form of Apollo. So now, in addition to using his name specifically in re with reference to the letter to the Thyatirans, we also have him then using his attributes once again. And in Revelation 2.18, you have the letter describing Christ as a person who has eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Again, flame of fire, this concept of, uh, of the, the sun and burning brilliance, etc., etc. Well, if you go then back to Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 15, where we have the description of the attributes of Christ, it there describes him as having eyes, whereas flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass. So again, we're repeating those attributes, incorporating them into the letter, and now why... Why do we have these particular attributes? Well, it's because of what's happening in the city of Thyatira, one with the uh, the worship of the sun god Apollo, um, and uh, and we've talked about that a little bit. The second aspect of the use of these attributes is talking about the fact that Christ has these polished feet of brass or bronze, which uh, keep in mind when you whenever you talk about someone's feet and someone's standing, we're always talking about this notion of power, strength, and dominion. And so uh, a conqueror who has prevailed over his enemies is a symbolic gesture of his power and dominion over this defeated enemy. He would place his feet on the neck of the king or the person that had been conquered. And so feet come to represent or symbolize this notion of power, strength, and dominion. Now the feet in this case are brass, and this correlates directly with the Thyatiran trade guilds that included um, coppersmiths and iron workers and people of this type. And so he's again playing on the attributes found in the city, comparing them against his own attributes in giving the message to the saints uh, in Thyatira. Um, 
It's important to note just in passing also that uh, you've got the uh, feet of Christ that are described as this uh, fine brass. The Greek word that is translated for brass in this particular verse could actually mean any one of several different types of uh, metals or alloys. And so it's not necessarily that it was uh, brass specifically, but brass uh, is an alloy of copper and zinc. Bronze is an alloy of copper and tin. And so you mix these various metals together to come up with an alloy that could be described by the Greek word used in this particular verse. But in short, uh, Thyatira was famous for either its bronze and or brass workers. And so we find those attributes of Christ being incorporated into the letter because it would have a certain appeal to them as a if you're from Thyatira, you get it. Oh, we're brass workers. So yeah, let's talk about brass. Um, and so at any rate, that's kind of uh, a little bit of the background on uh, the city in uh, Thyatira. There's a, a whole lot more to talk about. Um, it, I'm just going to have to do it later because I, I just don't have the time to do it in this single podcast. So we'll, we'll circle back to them and talk about the saints, including uh, a woman by the name of Jezebel of Thyatira, who is in direct contrast to and opposition of the Lydia of Thyatira, who's a good woman, and Jezebel, who's a very bad woman. And so all of these kinds of uh, things, you, you have to have an appreciation for the backstory in order to understand the message that John is delivering in his letter. Okay, so now we're going to turn to uh, the city of Sardis. This uh, starts out now, we're moving from Revelation chapter 2 to Revelation chapter 3, and specifically verses 1 through 6. But again, I'm only giving you kind of a discussion of the geography and attributes of the cities without diving into uh, some of the teachings that we can glean from these uh, particular verses and others. Uh, Sardis was a city that uh, the letter was bad news only. There was there were no commendations in the letter. They only got condemnations. And so uh, <clears throat> that's kind of where this letter begins. Now Sardis it was located about 30 miles south and east of Thyatira. And so if you went uh, back to directly to the west, uh, from Sardis, you'd be about 50 miles away from Ephesus because we're making this circular route going from Ephesus around the Horn and back down. And now um, we're coming down to um, Sardis. Now we're only about 50 miles east of Ephesus. And uh, when we get to Laodicea, we'll be in close proximity even more. So uh, Sardis uh, was a city that had a population of about 60,000 people. It was destroyed by the Turks in 1402 and uh, was never rebuilt. Today, it's a small village of ruin called Sirt Kalisi in uh, modern Turkey. And probably the name or word Sirt is a corruption of the ancient name of Sardis. Some ruins have survived the uh, Turkish invasions and earthquakes and other things that were happening, including two pillars from the Temple of Sibyl that was located in this particular city. 
Sardis was also a fairly important inland commercial center because it existed on uh, an east-west running trade route going from the coast over to uh, the city and then on into uh, further areas inland. The city was pretty famous for the uh, temple to the goddess Sibyl, who I mentioned a moment ago in uh, Greek. The Greeks would have called this particular goddess Artemis, which from our discussion of Ephesus, you'll remember that there's a correlation specifically to Diana, uh, the goddess in Ephesus. And these are all derivations and very similar types of uh, goddesses that uh, are being worshipped. But this particular temple to Sibyl was built just 300 years after Solomon had built the uh, temple in Jerusalem. And uh, Solomon took over as the king in ancient Israel about 975 AD. So roughly 300 years later, 600 AD, call it, 700 maybe, um, you had this temple to the goddess Sibyl that was built. And, and the pagan worship in that particular center was very similar to the type of worship that occurred with Diana in Ephesus. And in case you don't remember, Diana was the goddess of love uh, and fertility. And so, oh yeah, then that means lots of uh, immoral practices occurring in her temple, all right? So Sardis was also one of the oldest cities in Asia Minor. It was originally the capital of an ancient kingdom called Lydia until about 549 BC. The city was thought to be un, un, impregnable because it stood on the northern slope of a mountain called Mount Timolus. And so the Acropolis at the top of this mountain, and Acropolis just means a high city, and is usually associated with some type of stronghold located in that high city or the Acropolis. So in this particular case, atop the Mount Timolus, uh, there was an Acropolis that basically stood about 1,500 feet above the main roads of the city, and it kind of had this cliff up on one side that made it appear to be pretty much impenetrable. And then down at the bottom of this uh, mount, uh, you had the river Pactolus, which kind of served as a moat at the base of the mountain. And so it was ultimately conquered in 549 by Cyrus of Persia. Now, you might remember and be aware of Cyrus. He, his other claim to fame, well, he has several claims to fame. Uh, first of all, when Isaiah was writing and talking about uh, the Babylonian captivity and the person that would redeem uh, the Jews <clears throat> from captivity in Babylon, he identified Cyrus by name. So this is at least 100 to 200 years before Cyrus comes in and conquers Babylon in 539 BC. Isaiah had already identified him being the guy by name in his writings. And Cyrus uh, captured Babylon in a single night, even though it was the greatest uh, stronghold in the world at the time. He conquered it in a single night when he diverted the waters of the Euphrates River from underneath the massive walls of the city. And then his armies just kind of marched through on uh, dry or maybe muddy ground. <laughs> 
<laughs> and got into the city and, and defeated the city. So that's kind of what he's famous for. He's, he's kind of like a Hannibal Smith on the, uh, the A-team, you know. I love it when a plan comes together. And that's what happened about before he conquered Babylon, he conquered uh, the city of Sardis and, and, and managed to get up that Acropolis. And so what's interesting, how that got accomplished was um, essentially they scaled the walls of the mountain getting up to the Acropolis. And it was largely a problem that the, that the people in Sardis simply weren't paying attention, which allowed Cyrus to scale this wall with his soldiers up to the Acropolis to capture the city. But another interesting thing happened that led them to even make that attempt because they were sitting there watching the, uh, the city, kind of scoping it out, trying to figure out what to do. And uh, they see this 1,500 foot cliff leading up to the Acropolis. And I'm sure Cyrus and his uh, generals are sitting there saying, well, this is a fine kettle of fish. What are we going to do? And so as they were watching it, one of the soldiers in the top of the, uh, the mount, the Acropolis, dropped his helmet over the side of the Acropolis and ching, ching, bong, 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 down to the bottom and, and lands. And so the soldier has to go get his helmet. And they watched him as he walked. Basically, there were these kind of cuts or grooves in the uh, the rock at the side of the mountain. And, and it's like they had this little trail. like a little ladder, but with these grooves carved into the face of the mountain. And so he was able to go down, get his helmet, and, uh, and then he went back up and, and, he, and Cyrus and his team are sitting there watching this and they say, well, I have an idea. <laughs> and that's how they captured the city. So it was two things. It was first of all, <clears throat> because no one was paying any attention because the watchman had failed to keep watch. And the other thing was because they saw this soldier go down, pick up his helmet and then got back up again. And so I have to just talk about how this relates. I know I told you I wasn't going to talk about the saints themselves, um, but I have to because it's such an interesting story of what brought down the city of Sardis to the conqueror Cyrus. And it's two things, the failure to watch. And we have that in the church today. And that, that's the problem that the saints experienced at the time is they, they simply weren't watching um, their spiritual lives and what they were doing. And the second thing is, is that sometimes like this soldier who basically showed the Persian soldiers how they could scale this impenetrable fortress, he showed them how to do it by engaging in an activity that he never should have done. He's, you know, I know you got to get your helmet, but you, you don't show the enemy your weakness. And how often do we as Latter-day Saints, and how often did the saints in Sardis, who were condemned by the Savior, engage in an activity that where essentially they invite Satan into their midst, and we invite Satan into our midst by going out and doing things. So it's not just a, a, a problem where the saints in Sardis were kind of asleep at the switch, but they were also doing things that eventually invited their own destruction. And I, I just kind of wanted to add that because I see that uh, with 
people in the church today who, and, and we all know them, and, and you know what I'm talking about, and I don't mean to criticize, but it's a problem uh, that we have people who are asleep when they should be watching, and we have people who are engaged in activities that essentially invite Satan into their lives, and that's how they get conquered, and I think it's such an important message. I'll probably talk about it again later, <laughs> but I wanted to, to just kind of add that here. Now, what was it about the Sar Sardinian saints that was a problem for them? And the problem was is that uh, the city of Sardis was extremely wealthy, and it had a reputation for people living a very luxurious lifestyle uh, before the Roman period. And much of the wealth came from the gold in the Pactolus River, and they were also good metal workers. Um, according to one tradition, when Cyrus captured the city of Sardis, as I've already described to you, it's he's said to have uh, taken $600 million worth of treasure at the time he conquered that city. Now, that's a lot, and I assume that that number kind of reflects $600 million worth in today's terms, but that's a that's a nice tidy sum for a night's work uh, in uh, Sardis. And uh, Sardis was also a city that was thought to be the first city to mint coins of gold and silver. They were also the first to dye wool in the manufacture of woolen garments. And so this this idea that they were uh, woolen garment manufacturers plays into the content of this letter where John then describes these people as those who had defiled their garments in Revelation 3-4. The reference to defiled garments is not coincidental because he's talking to people who manufacture woolen garments and he's telling them your garments that you manufacture and that you wear are defiled. Now in addition the wealth of the city was also something that uh, came about because they also had a thriving fruit industry. Now by the time of the uh, Roman period Sardis had begun to decline both in terms of its wealth and its importance and by the time of 17 AD there was this devastating earthquake that was followed by a pestilence uh, that the city really never regained its stature uh, from before versus after. And that's one of the things that then is used to explain the nature of the Sardian saints was because they, they had built on this legacy of saints before them who were faithful and pious, uh, much like in Ephesus where it says, uh, where John's letter says, hey, you've left your first love. So you were devout at first, but then you left your first love. And the Sardian saints, it's much the same, that uh, they had devout, devout saints initially, but then they had kind of tended to fall off, and they were living on the faith of uh, those that had preceded them. And I'll, I'll talk about that just a little bit more, but let me now talk about the attributes of Christ that we get from Revelation 1 as compared to the attributes that are then described in Revelation chapter 3. So in Revelation 3, in the introduction or the salutation of the letter to the Sardian saints, John states that it is Christ 
that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And in Revelation 1.16, that comes from where John had previously described the Savior as one who had in his right hand the seven stars. Now, what's kind of interesting about his use in this particular uh, letter is the fact that he's writing to saints who uh, don't have anything good to be said about them. And so these are people that only are being condemned. And so unlike the the prior cities where uh, it talks about the Savior having the uh, seven stars in his right hand, these seven stars are not in his right hand. It just simply says that he hath the seven spirits of God, who are these leaders of the churches and the seven stars. In other words, he possesses them, but they are not protectively, uh, they're not in his protection in his hand. That's the difference between Ephesus and Sardis, because Ephesus had some good people who were described as the seven spirits, the seven stars, who were in the hollow of Christ's hand. And remember, I played that hymn, uh, from uh, that talks about the missionaries goes out and and hold him in the uh, hollow of your hand, a song by uh, Janice Cap Perry, and so here they're not in the hollow of his hand. He's simply saying, "You are my possessions, but I'm not offering you any protection because you haven't done anything to earn it." And so that's how some of these characteristics then fold in as I've talked about before. Now, essentially, Christ was condemning the spiritual apathy of these saints, and he tells them, Thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. And it's because they're basically trying to live off their reputation. It's kind of like today, um, we look back on our pioneer forebears who came across the plains. We Going back even further from the faithful saints of the church in New York that <clears throat> eventually go to Ohio, from Ohio to Missouri, from Missouri to Illinois, from Illinois to the Salt Lake Valley, all suffering very significant hardships and uh, things that were great challenges. And we look back on those people in all of those eras and their faith that they exhibited and uh, and we revere them and to a certain extent those who are just kind of coasting along today um, on the faith of our pioneer heritage are doing the same thing that the saints in Sardis were doing that said well we're, we're members of the church um, but Christ says yeah you might have that name and you might that might be a part of your persona, but you're dead because you're not doing any deeds that merit having the name. And so that's his big uh, challenge uh, of the uh, saints in uh, Sardis, how they were physically and socially alive, but essentially they were uh, spiritually dead. And so we find that. And I'm, again, I'm kind of starting to get off into what the problems of the saints were, but I, I think it's an integral part of what ultimately caused their downfall was the fact that uh, they didn't live the principles of the gospel they only had the name 
um, and claimed membership in the church, essentially to be seen of men. It's kind of like the whited sepulchers that Jesus Christ talked about when he was describing the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's also the, uh, the, widow's, the story of the widow's might, where she gave her all, and the others, you know, they gave of their abundance and their wealth, um, but didn't do it with this kind of inward commitment, and it was simply to be seen of other men. It was a worship that had a form of godliness, but lacked the power of God to give a spiritual life. It's an outward profession with no inward conviction. And so that's why Jesus is telling him, you have a name that thou livest. Yeah, you're alive physically, but you're dead spiritually. And that's the message to the Sardian saints. And it's a message, it doesn't take much of a stretch to realize or figure out, oh, he's really describing things that I see in people today. And so uh, if uh, you you want people to have a wake-up call, um, not to be asleep when uh, Cyrus, uh, you know, the Hannibal Smith of the A-team starts knocking at your door, time to wake up and smell the roses um, because you need to be prepared and you can't invite these kinds of things into your life by the manner in which you're living. And so all of those things kind of come into play from the uh, circumstances of this city and, and what happened with the uh, saints in Sardis and how John uses those conditions to really play on the emotions of the people who are his audience. So that's Sardis. We now come to the city of Philadelphia. This is our sixth of seven cities. Um, Philadelphia, uh, good news. Uh, th there was no condemnation. And uh, so this was one of the two cities that received com commendations only and no condemnation. S Smyrna was the other city that, uh, that the Savior commended for their uh, faithfulness. Now, uh, the city of Philadelphia probably had a bishop by the name of Demetrius. It's not indicated in the book of Revelation, but John, in his third epistle, identified a man by the name of Demetrius um, as being one of the leaders of the church. And the connection's not real clear, and you probably get about half the people saying, yeah, it probably was Demetrius, and about half saying, maybe not. Um, but at any rate, it's a possibility. Now, Philadelphia was the, like the Philadelphia we have in the United States today. It's the city of brotherly love. The name comes from the Greek word philia, which is one of three types of words that describe love. So in Greek, the word philia would be a description of the love that is associated with a friend or an acquaintance. Then you have agape, which would be the love of Christ or charity. And then you have eros, which would be a romantic love or some type of sexual attraction. And so in this case, Philadelphia from philia means it comes from uh, the love of a friend or an acquaintance. And the place that this comes from is a guy by the name of King Attalus, Philadelphus of Pergamos. And so he was the king of Pergamos. He starts this uh, <clears throat> city, um, and he was a person who had great affection for his brother. And so he, he took on the name of Philadelphia, Philadelphia because of King Attalus's love of his brother. The city is also called Little Athens because of its magnificent magnificent temples and public buildings. Today the city is called 
Al-Shazir or Al-Sahir, uh, which means the city of God in modern Turkey. This was the last city in Asia Minor to fall under Turkish control, according to some. And uh, even after it fell to the Turks, um, it remained predominantly Christian even after its fall. The city also boasted many vineyards in the area, and because of this, and because it was an area where wine was made, not surprisingly, the patron deity for this city was Dionysus, the god of wine. <laughs> and so, essentially, we find, uh, I think I mentioned this already, that uh, Philadelphia was about 25 miles south and a little bit to the east of uh, Sardis, and it was an important commercial uh, center inland uh, as opposed to the coastal cities which when they started to decline then Philadelphia became a more important type of uh, city because it was on the trade route to uh, to Persia and uh, as I mentioned no the, the Savior did not condemn the Philadelphian Saints they had remained holy and true to the gospel and so it was that in Revelation 3 7 in the Savior's salutation to this city he describes himself to them as being holy and true and so you get this matching of their devotion with his uh, qualities and uh, characteristics in this particular letter, there's also this discussion about how Christ has the power to both bless and condemn, which is embodied in the key of David, which only he possesses. And so this uh, reference to the key of David in uh, Revelation 3.7 has reference to the ability of Christ to open and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man open. So that's, what, that's the attributes that it's describing in John's letter to the Philadelphian saints. We find that illustrated in Revelation 5.5, 5, where uh, John described the book with seven seals and how Christ alone had the power to open that particular book. It, it relates to and corresponds with his uh, power as one holding the key of David. Now, if you go back to the attributes that John described the Savior in Revelation 1.18, uh, the Savior says, I have the keys of hell and death. So in, in the letter, he says, I have, the, I have the key of David. And in Revelation 1, I have the key of hell and death. And they basically both mean the same thing because essentially Christ has the power to open and close the post-mortal spirit world. He has the power to admit and exclude people from the kingdom of God. And he is the ultimate governor uh, who holds the key of David. And so let me talk a little bit about the symbolism of the key of David so you hopefully can make the connection a little bit clearer. So the key of David derives from two separate symbols. A key obviously in a religious context symbolizes power and authority of the the priesthood key holders but it's the same thing in a secular setting as well one who holds the key holds the key of the government you know people go and visit the city oh we'll give you the key to the city 
<laughs> and so the, the symbolism of that is that it demonstrates you have power and you have authority. So when, then when you couple that with the name of David, who of course was the second king in Israel, that key then becomes synonymous with absolute power and dominion. And the, rule, the reason for that is because David <clears throat> was a king that had absolute power in Israel. And he was recognized as this, as a warrior king. Uh, he defeated Goliath, and uh, it was under David that the, the nation and kingdom of Israel was at the pinnacle of its power. And it then shifted to Solomon. It wasn't too long before things went started to go sideways. But David's the guy. And so in the, the writings of Isaiah, for example, he talks about the fact that the increase of Christ's government and the peace thereof, there is no end upon the throne of David. And so Christ is the rightful heir to hold the key of David, both because he is the governor and, uh, and it, is, it is his right. But he also descended from David, of course, through his, both his, Mary, his mother Mary and Joseph, his ostensible father. Both of them were descendants of David. And so by birth and by right, Jesus was the legal heir to David's kingdom. And so with this key of David, Christ has the power to rule with absolute power over all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and in all matters, both spiritual and temporal, and in matters of both life and death. He holds the keys to, to open these kinds of things. And so that's where these attributes tie in directly to uh, this letter that is written to the saints in Philadelphia. Now, since unlike, uh, um, unlike Sardis, who we just looked at a moment ago, um, what you have is a situation in which they, they did nothing right. And so in the exercise of this key, Christ would condemn them. He would close to them, using his key, the portals of the kingdom of heaven, but to the Philadelphian saints, uh, who he only commended by their good works as being holy and true, uh, he opens to them the kingdom of heaven with the key of David that he possesses. All right, so that then brings us to the last city, uh, which is called Laodicea. And uh, you can read about this particular city and its saints in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. And uh, I think that John, uh, other than simply going through the uh, cities in chronological order or clockwise manner, turns out that the Laodiceans are also the worst of all condemnations, which is kind of interesting. I'm not going to spend much time talking about it because even though they got the worst of all condemnations. They also got the best of the best promises of exaltation, eternal life, crowns of glory, if they would overcome Satan. And so uh, this kind of pairing occurs a lot. There's, we talk about this need for there to be an opposition in all things. And I always say it's not just that we have an opposition in all things. We have an equal and opposite opposition in all things. And every, everything's kept in balance. You have the worst of the worst against the best of the best. And that kind of is illustrated here in this letter to the Laodiceans where they got the worst of all condemnations, but in the promises 
given to them if they would overcome and clean up their act they had the best of all promises and so um as we as we go through this i'm not going to get into much more detail on that because again i'm trying to focus on kind of the geography and how the letter relates to the attributes that john would have seen and encountered in the particular city he was talking about so here we are with the seventh letter um the uh the bishop in laodicea is probably a guy by the name of archippus and paul identifies him we think in the book of Colossians about 30 years later. So his, his name is referenced there. And uh, if the connection is correct, then Paul actually gives us this name in the book of Colossians. Now, Laodicea, the name itself means justice of the people. This is a pretty fitting name for members of the church in Laodicea because essentially they were guided by their own standard of devotion. Their devotion was so worldly that no one from the outside persecuted. In other words, they looked so much like their neighbor who was a non-member of the church, who was a pagan worshiper, who was a emperor worshiper, uh, whatever they did, uh, the Laodicean saints looked so much like their non-member neighbors that nobody bothered them at all to persecute them. They, they're just one of us. Um, and, and you stop and think about that a little bit as that translates into conditions in the church today. Uh, we see we get our share of uh, um, things that happen to us and uh, the problems that uh, people challenge us on. But if people don't live their religion, nobody gives them the time of day. <laughs> and so this is a church that uh, Jesus didn't have anything good to say about them. And uh, as we talk a little bit about the history of the church, we're not certain how the church uh, initially came to be, but most likely it began through Paul's ministry while he was in Ephesus, about 40 miles to the west of Laodicea. Uh, we don't believe that Paul personally ministered among the Laodiceans. He just did so through his writings. And initially, the church did flourish in that area. Uh, he actually wrote an epistle to the Ephesians um, that was apparently intended to go to the Laodicean saints. And so how this works is <clears throat> Laodicea was close to two other cities by the name of uh, Colossae, which is the letter to whom the Colossians went. And then we also have Hierapolis, uh, which was located in that area. And so when Paul uh, wrote to these churches, because they were all kind of, they're in kind of a triangle um, where they're only about 15 to 20 miles apart. And so as he wrote to these three churches, they were all kind of put together in the letter that he wrote to the Colossians. All right. So even though it's addressed to the Colossians, it's really to all three cities. Then, as I mentioned, Paul also wrote separately to the Laodiceans, and that epistle exists, but it didn't make its way into the New Testament canon. So Paul was writing to these various churches, including his letter to the Laodiceans, during the five-year period of time that he was in Rome between 61 and 66 AD. So after his first imprisonment and his trial, um, when he was basically released, is when Paul wrote to the various letter wrote the various letters, including the the Laodiceans, and then of course 
Paul was rearrested, and on his second trial in front of Nero, Nero sentenced him to death, and uh, Paul was executed. So uh, Laodicea is also kind of noteworthy because uh, it was uh, among the Catholic councils where a decision was made as to which books were going to be included in the Bible canon, and that happened in about 361 AD. And I, I talk about that in an earlier podcast that I did on October 8th that talks about the date and canonization of the Book of Revelation. So if you have an interest in that, go back and listen to that podcast. But at any rate, it's just somewhat ironic <clears throat> that you have this council meeting in the city of Laodicea where they're trying to figure out what to include in the Bible. They've got this epistle from Paul to the Laodiceans and they decide, yeah, we're not, we're not going to include that one. It's out. <laughs> so it just never made its way into the Bible canon. So Laodicea actually got its name from uh, Laodice, who was the wife of Antiochus II. He was the king of Syria that rebuilt the city in the second century BC. And so being a nice guy, maybe he was having his anniversary or something as a birthday present. And she's saying, hey, what'd you get me for my birthday or anniversary? He said, well, I decided I was trying to uh, name have you uh, get a star that would be named after you, but at that time you didn't have the star charts or anything, so so we had to reduce it to just, uh, I, I went ahead and I named a city for you. <laughs> and she said, well, really, well, I really wanted a star. I said, did you get anything else? And so at any rate, but that's, <clears throat> I'm just telling stories now, but uh, that's where the city's name got its name, was uh, the wife of Antiochus II and uh, he named it for her. And so uh, by the first century AD, the city was extremely wealthy and it was known for its black wool industry among others. It had three theaters, a large stadium. Uh, and just to give you an illustration of just how wealthy this city was, uh, after an earthquake in 60 AD, the wealthy citizens rebuilt the city without any help from Rome. So when Rome came in and said, yeah, we can reduce your taxes and we'll try and help you with some infrastructure. You know, we had a uh, infrastructure bill going through Congress kind of thing. They said, no, we don't need your help. We got it covered. And so uh, they were very, very wealthy. And it was this wealth that caused the pride and the ultimate downfall of the church members in Laodicea. And probably the thing that you'll remember Laodicea, even though I'm not going to talk about it today, is how we have the lukewarm Laodiceans and how the Savior told them, because you're neither cold nor hot uh, and you're just lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And so I will get to a discussion of that in a, uh, a later podcast and how that plays into some of the attributes of the, uh, the city. But the, uh, the city itself um, was destroyed in the 13th century by Turkish invaders, and uh, it never rose again. Today, it's basically deserted, and it, it goes by the name of Eski Hisar, which means Old Castle. And again, that's still in uh, modern Turkey. Now, John predicted the, uh, the deadly end to this city when he was writing his letter saying, These things saith the Amen. So that's the attribute that John is focused on as he writes his letter. And we find that attribute referenced in Revelation 1.18, where the Savior described himself as saying, I am alive forevermore. Amen. 
And so you can see again the, the use of the attributes. Now, amen usually signals the end of a prayer or pronouncement. And when you say amen at the end of a prayer or something else, you're, you're basically making a statement that I agree with what has just been said. What is, but in this particular letter, the letter starts with the word am. Again, Christ is sitting here saying, these things saith the amen. So rather than waiting to the end of the letter to say amen about all the bad things that are going to happen to the Laodicean, he's basically saying, these things saith the amen, which is a means of basically saying, this letter is about to declare to you the truth and what no one can disagree with. In other words, something everybody should agree with and can agree with. And this is going to be the end or the amen of the Laodicean saints and the church in Laodicea. And so the ultimate destruction of both the city and her people, including members of the church then, bears witness to the unalterable truth uh, by Jesus Christ, who is the Amen. And so that's the, that's the summation of uh, the uh, city in uh, Laodicea. And that concludes the discussion about these seven cities that we have. And keep in mind, and something that we'll go through later on, is essentially these are the universal church. They're seven in number, very diverse in the type of cities that they are, the, the beliefs of the people, where they were spiritually in relationship to uh, their faith in Jesus Christ, their devotion to Jesus Christ, some good, some bad, some in between. This is the universal church. And the message is uh, for us as the church today. And in the church today, we see attributes of all these things. Uh, and by things, I mean all these churches and, and the members of the church. And so uh, don't pass by your study of the book of Revelation too quickly trying to get to, well, I want to know what's happening in the future. Because the future of the church, of members of the church who lack faith, both good, bad, indifferent, they're written in these letters. And if you want to, to see something and you want to gauge your spirituality, read those letters and say, now, which one of these churches do I most look like? And uh, if you find yourself being among those churches where uh, the, the Savior offers some measure of condemnation, now is the time to uh, improve and get better so that you can be like uh, the people either in Smyrna or in uh, Philadelphia which uh, the Savior had only good things to say about them. And I, I hope that can be the case for you in your lives. So I'll see you again next week and uh, look forward to it.